This is the Black and Gold Banneret Podcast. Now, here are your hosts, Jeff Sharon and Eric Lopez. And we welcome you to this edition of the Black and Gold Banneret Podcast. I'm Eric Lopez. Jeff Sharon has entered the transfer portal, everybody. He does not at uh, least respect his privacy. Thankfully, Kyle Nash, Andrew Glukoff, Bryson Turner all here. They didn't enter the portal, although a couple of them might be applying to play at the military because We need some players. Coming up on the show, we're going to have our final thoughts on the UCF loss to Tulane and what went wrong and what what's next. We'll talk about some of the players that have departed via the transfer portal or declaring for the NFL draft and the impact of those losses. And that UCF bowl game matchup, a rematch, payback for Coach K and Zion. Uh, not quite. We'll break that down, the excitement of the military bowl against Duke. Also later, the one team that won this weekend for UCF, men's basketball. Well, t- In overtime, Kyle had to literally work overtime. Yes. Uh, it, it, he'll break that down for us. And we'll briefly mention women's basketball, 40-point loss, Albert. And we'll talk volleyball is in their season. That's all coming up on this edition of the Black and Gold Bannerette. Check it out at blackandgoldbanneret.com and check us out on all our favorite social media places, including our YouTube place. Subscribe there where you get to check out Night Shift, where Bryson, me, Kyle, Drew, we all broke down the Tulane loss in depth over two hours, as a matter of fact. But... We'll begin the show with kind of now that we've had a few days, guys, to think about it. I want to ask uh, all uh, you, Kyle and Drew, and I'll start with you, Drew. Years from now, when you look back at this Tulane loss in the American Conference Championship game, what's going to come to your mind? Well, um, after the game, I tried entering the portal, and the portal threw me out. Uh, (laughs) So um, that's why I'm still here. the, the the truth is, you know, much like what happened at the end of Conference USA's tenure, UCF wins the division, they go to the conference championship game, they lose. They actually lost the last game in the MAC as well. I mean, it's just kind of like the old ra- wrestling uh, saying of, of, you know, leaving on your back, where a lot of times you're leaving a promotion, they make you lose your last match and you move on. Well, this just happens to be the way it, it, it kind of – fell out. And the, and the truth is in the grand scheme of things, it's not very material because UCF each time has moved on to a new conference and it's done well. They, they obviously the Mac was some dark times, but they moved to conference USA. They did well. They moved on to the American. They did well. And now they move on to the big 12. So yeah. Does it hurt? Sure. You know, did, did we want to see the Knights go to the comparable? Sure. But in the grand scheme of things, is this a really bad situation? No, still the military ball. It's against an ACC opponent and, and a chance to to at least start stretching the legs into the life of the power five. Kyle, what will you remember when you think back to this game? I mean, for me, it's going to be about injury and limitation up front and, and basically the way the season ended being disappointing. And I think that part is, is, is what fans are going to remember. But I think the part that's not being talked about is everybody wants to point out about something, something Gus's offense. This is a growing pain, I feel like, as the as UCF as an offense transitions into what Gus is trying to do, be it with mobile quarterbacks or or you know, smash mouth style football, running the ball or any of that. And moreover, 
the, I think the defense's collapse is going to be a big part of what of what is remembered for this year and, and, and how they started so strong and then themselves kind of tapering off in the last two games. Say what you will about Navy holding a team to 17 points. It's still something that's a good performance overall, in my opinion. That being said, I think it's just going to be, you know, ending disappointed. But I think at the same time, fans have plenty of positives to pull out, right? Making sure the cotton nail in uh, football against USF remains an eight to six series win instead of a seven, seven tie historically, that sort of thing. There were plenty of positive moments, but there isn't a big wow moment certainly not compared to last year where Gus made his debut this group was still the first in the state to be bowl eligible this group was still somebody that you know won some big games beating a two-lane which eventually came back to claim the championship and also beating Cincinnati which I think is a big deal in and of itself Bryson you're what will you remember years from now when you think of this game I think years from now, I'm I think I'm going to remember this as a bit of a climax to what what to what was a kind of a late season collapse, to be honest, from this team. I mean, the Navy loss, almost blowing it against USF and then to and then losing to Tulane in the conference championships sort of takes the cake. Now, the fact that we made it into the conference championship to begin with, I think, is good, but. I think that if there's a theme of this season is that it's going to be missed opportunities and that we left stuff on and we left, you know, we left money on the table. And I think overall it's going to be a, be a very, it's going to be like a a season where, you know, I think we'll look back on and think, you know, we probably could have done better. I'm not, I'm not completely, you know, I don't think it was a bad season, but it really could have been better. And I feel bad that we didn't reach that potential. Unrealized potential, that's the word. There you go, potential. I will think of it as what ifs, because this year is what if. If they beat East Carolina, they host college game day. And you funny, it's funny, Bryson, you mentioned left money on the table. You could argue this, this team left a lot of money on the table. Cost them game day exposure. If they beat Navy, they're hosting the conference championship game. Or if they beat East Carolina, take your pick. They win one of those two games. They're hosting the conference championship game. Left money on the table there. If you beat Tulane, you're going to the Cotton Bowl. Playing USC for the first time ever. Didn't win that. Lose money on the table. And all of it was surrounded by the swirl drama of the quarterback room and who should play quarterback and who's not playing quarterback. And Drew, I, it's funny. I love the wrestling analogy, which uh, you got me. The, it was with the the wrestler on his last match before leaving the territory, taking the loss. That is a tra- a, tra- a tradition unlike any other, unless you're Bret Hart. Uh, I, I was playing to the audience there. Well, I'll give you another wrestling term. Mikey Keene was the tag team wrestler that was, you know, helping out all year. He's reaching out to his partner. His partner is in need. He helped. He needs help. That partner in need is reaching out for the tag, and Mikey Keene gets off the ring apron and walks out. Walks out to the backstage like a heel would do in wrestling tag team match and made himself not available and from for that game. Pretty wild stuff. Uh, those are some of the things I will remember uh, from that Tulane game. Uh, and the fact that we saw <laughs> – a young freshman thrown to the wolves 
Thomas Castellanos burned his red shirt, clearly not ready. You, Drew, and Kyle, both of you were ready. Uh, we're right on that. That was an, a, a situation you had to av- you try to avoid, couldn't avoid. And then JRP playing really hard, considering he was less than 100% clearly, battles his guts out. And to Kyle's point, that defense getting torched. Uh, so those are the thoughts from the Tulane game. Let me ask you both, Drew and Kyle, because you both had a great segment while I was doing volleyball postgame on night shift. <laughs> Uh, but I watched back, which I encourage you all to do as well. And you both dissected the defense. Scheme versus the personnel. You felt that the scheme did not help the personnel, especially on the secondary. A lot of talk about it, obviously, during the game and after the game about so many wide-open guys playing far back, even alumni players being critical. Just kind of expand on, on this now. You have it a few days because you know since then we've now learned there's a few def- defensive players now leaving. Uh, discuss that because you two kind of had some interesting thoughts there about the scheme and then the player personnel. What went wrong? And how Tulane was able to expose it. Well, Drew, you're the defensive guy. I mean, the only thing I really felt like was different is you're sitting back and Ben don't break to prevent for the big plays, and yet still there were four touchdowns. Was it a forty yards or more? Uh, I mean, four I don't think. Six. What what was that, buddy? Four out of the six of them were over 40 yards. Right, exactly. Well, that's what I mean. Right, exactly. So with all that in mind, I, I kind of feel like the, the scheme failed the players if the idea was to bend and not break, right? I, I don't know what more I can add beyond that. Well, I mean, the scheme, the, the way the scheme is designed is to help players that, that aren't as good. The thing is, you know, UCF had the talent and speed to be able to hang with these receivers. You could work with bump coverage and and play tighter and stick with man without getting burned. Uh, you don't need that huge buffer. There was a certain point where uh, Justin Hodges was lined up over 10 yards off the receiver. And then not only that, to compound it, his angle of attack was so off that he missed the play mm-hmm. uh, when it came towards him. That was the other thing. If you're going to be playing off the ball, you have to have your angle of attack right. You have to anticipate where the receiver is going and work on an intercept course. If if you if you try to aim for where he is, you're not he's not going to be there. And and that happened multiple times as a result of of a, with a bad angle, then you have an arm tackle or you maybe get a hand, not enough to actually pull, you know, pull a player down right. and you start getting these huge chunk plays as a result. Uh, but they've been doing this all year outside of a couple of small pockets where they started playing tighter coverage and when they played that tight coverage that they with a little bit of bump at the line it made a difference uh they did at the end of cincinnati and and they shut the cincinnati offense down they 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 went nowhere so it's like great that's awesome they're finally starting to get it and then they went back to what was not working before and it never worked yeah i wonder a part of me wonders too um the fact that they were that devoted to it you know we we saw there were moments where guys might have been isolated in the SMU game, I've cited before that that was kind of a, a a bit of a, what's his word, moment in the season where the defense got the most confident, and then that ECU game comes along, and all that changes. And I don't want to say that I felt like there was panic from that moment on, but that was kind of the beginning of the struggles for this particular group on defense, right? You know, that, that ECU game easily. But I'll put it this way. For my money, another thing that's worth pointing out 
is is after the Navy game, the defense just wasn't quite the same in its own right in other ways as well. And and, and this wouldn't be the first group that started to get fatigued after playing Navy in a season, especially late. And, you know, as much as we don't want to draw comparisons necessarily to 2017 because of the hurricanes and things like that that came through, you know, 18, I feel like, had kind of the same effect on this group too. I mean, it's – I'll put it this way. The one thing that a lot of fans will remember from this year is not having to play Navy anymore. That's probably worth mentioning. Um, you know, but overall, yeah, I'm kind of with you. It's, it's just – I feel like the scheme – is what it's been, Drew, and over and above that, Willie Fritz knew they were going to come out with that because he's a good football coach. And, and he's seen it already. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, that that's that's the big thing, Kyle, is when you're playing another a team for the second time, you gotta change it up. Uh, because they have film on you against them. But you know, whatever reason they, they went out with the same game plan and it fizzled. It fizzled. Now they don't have to play Navy, Kyle, but UCF does have to play where Na- uh, play where Navy it does normally play in the military bowl. Uh, as a result, UCF will take on Duke, uh, December twenty eighth, two o'clock kick. True uh, credit to you. You were from the beginning. You felt military bowl for UCF if they didn't get to the Cotton Bowl. You felt, and I think we both were on the same page on this. We felt this year UCF was going to go out of state, no matter you know, no matter what. So mm-hmm. we nailed that correctly. Um, so let me ask you this, thoughts, because I'm tired of talking about the Tulane game. Everybody's tired of it. Nobody, we just want to burn it to the ground. Uh, although I will bring up some TV numbers about that game momentarily. But give me your your thoughts, Drew, on the Military Bowl matchup here against Duke. Uh, well, uh, this is a very interesting, interesting team. Mike Elko. Uh, actually, I had I had the opportunity to vote in the for the Eddie Robinson Coach of the Year, and Mike Elko received one of my three votes. Wow! Look at uh, this, Kyle. Look at this guy showing off, saying he's a voter. Look at this guy. Well, uh, they 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 at least take our suggestions into consideration. But you get a first, second, and third vote. He was my my third place guy. Uh, I like to point out that Willie Fritz was my first place. Are you guy. allowed to even unveil? Wow, you're unveiling your votes here. Okay. It, it, there's nothing that said I can't. <laughs> um, and yeah, that's it's, okay. I'll gladly take your spot and I'll keep my mouth shut next year. <laughs> yeah, this is the Baseball Hall of Fame where you you know, get in trouble for selling your 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 vote. Uh, definitely not the issue. But you know, this is a, a a very scrappy team, an efficient team. You know. Uh, they went eight and four in the ACC. Uh, they defeated Wake Forest to close out the season, which, you know, as we know, Wake Forest started off ranked before they kind of got very streaky. But this is a this is a very good team. You have uh, a quarterback in Riley Leonard, who is the thing that UCF dreads the most. Now, Eric, without giving any hints, what does UCF always dread the most in a quarterback? Dual threat. Boom! Dual threat quarterback. Two, just under 2,800 yards passing, 20 touchdowns, over 600 yards and 11 touchdowns on the ground. This is a dual threat quarterback, and UCF has, uh, st- you know, historically struggled against dual threat quarterbacks. So, uh, obviously, from that standpoint, it's not a, a great matchup for the Knights. But on the flip side, it is a great matchup in the fact of this is an opportunity to play a P5 school, get a little bit of hardware, go for a 10th win, and you're punching up. You're not punching down. And that was one of the big things that I pushed against in the, the Florida in-state bowl games, all the bowl games that UCF was eligible to get to, the Cure, the Boca Raton, and the Gasparone. 
always going to be a case of punching down. Because originally, they, if UCF ended up in the gas they weren't going to play a power conference team. They were probably end up with someone else. So they shipped them out, and they've got a pair of power conferences into the it's the Gasparilla using the, some of their loopholes within their their conference uh, tie-ins. Uh, but, you know, this is actually the best that you've got to be able to travel. Uh, this is the furthest north that UCF has played a bowl game. You know, it's it's something different. I I, I can't speak for, for others, but, you know, I was tired of the in-state stuff. They're pre-Christmas bowl games. You know, that's that's you need you, you want that extra practice time, especially you're breaking in some new new guys. You, you have players that have left. You need to get them more reps. What's the best way to get more reps? Give them more practice. Have a later bowl game, which affords you that that luxury. So you got December 28th. Uh, you know, so you got the holidays, get them out of the way. And then you got a little bit more than the, in the game itself. Uh, I think this is a, a best case scenario for UCF since the Cotton Bowl became, uh, you know, out of their reach. Kyle, your thoughts on that. Do you agree with Drew on that? Or, I mean, you fired up for Duke UCF? I mean, so granted, you weren't going to be able to match the luster that was them battling Florida last year, the way that all worked out. And I mean, listen, to Drew's point, when he was analyzing this and making predictions for the bowl games that went up that you both you actually you and Drew made on black and gold banner at that com. Um, he didn't know to that point that it would be placed by two power five teams this year, of course, being Wake Forest in Missouri. But let's be honest, guys. In this particular instance, would the fan base have been excited to play Missouri? You know, the only the only uh, pushback I would offer is maybe Wake Forest is on par-ish with playing Duke. But that, at the end of the point, Drew is right from this standpoint that whether fair or not, pre-Christmas bowl games are given a bit of a, a, a nose turn in that they're just not as important or relevant or you pick the word. Um, but they certainly don't have the prestige as their post-Christmas brethren. And that is 100% accurate. And and I, I, I that prestige is what UCF needs as it's heading to the to the uh, to the Big 12. So if anybody were to battle back Drew's point of punching up, battling Wake Forest, fair or not, would be perceived in the, by the lame stream as being punching up. I'm enjoying the fact that Kyle's breaking down has to, has to break down ACC teams. His favorite conference that he loves to talk about. I mean, that's he what I'm enjoying. He loves the ACC. Absolutely. Okay, well, here's, <laughs> here's my thought. If Miami would have been bowl eligible, we might have gotten Miami UCF in the military bowl, perhaps, right? Like that the problem that we're missing is we don't have a Florida matchup this year that UCF could fall under or if Miami was bow eligible. So you're kind of by randomness, you pick, you end up getting Duke who has had a good year. Mike Elko, you mentioned it. He's done a nice job there. Left Texas A&M. We've seen what's happened to Texas A&M since he left. Um, I think eight and four, they should be excited. They haven't been in a bowl in a few years. They should be the ones that are excited there, but I don't know if the fan base for UCF will be excited, even though, they're going to be staying in Washington, D.C. And if somebody's been up there, they're, they're, that's not a bad place to hang out uh, post-Christmas. Oh, not at all. The only way I'd correct you, Eric, and then I'm sure Drew will come in and tell me why this is wrong, but if Miami, wrong. If, if, <laughs> if Miami were bowl eligible, I really think you would have seen a Gasparilla Bowl appearance for the two teams. Ooh. Drew, you want to respond to that? I mean, is it possible? Sure, and fans would love it, but the truth is it doesn't actually help from a national standpoint, 
Yeah, um, not from a prestige pan standpoint, Drew, but I'm thinking of the dollars. Listen, it was recently, re uh, well, I shouldn't say recently released, but I saw something out there on Twitter that as endowment goes for teams, UCF is pretty low in the Big 12, if not outright the lowest. And that's even including among some of its brethren that are soon to transition into the Big 12 in question. So let's not forget the fiscal aspect. From let a me tell you, national let, 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 standpoint, you are correct, though. I'm not arguing that. I actually looked into that this morning, and, and let me tell you, not only is is UCF the lowest endowment in the Big 12, UCF's endowment is lower than Florida Atlantic's, Whoa. Florida Internationals, and less than 25% of South Florida's. Oh. UCF's endowment is low. I mean, for the school and size, it is really low. So, I mean, it's actually something they really should be focusing on. Uh, but that's, that's my opinion. Uh, it's Which, actually it, it was something it caught my attention. This when it was brought up because I, I know what you're talking about, and I looked into it. I'm like, wow, they're really low. Uh, a lot they're, <laughs> yeah, they're they're not as bad as you know North Florida or West Florida, but you know, uh, you know the fact that Florida International has a but how does that get how do we fix that? How does it get fixed? Well, I mean, you do it through you fundraising efforts, but the focus is, you know, everyone's so focused on athletics, the dollars are all going there uh, through fundraising, you know, efforts and whatnot. You know, the the endowment fund kind of gets forgotten. And then someone tried to spin with me that, oh, it's because they're aggressively spending. Well, that means they're not spending well because they're means they're over leveraging now because the endowment is supposed to help with funding things tomorrow with its with dividends and interest payments and everything. So I I, I think I think from an academic standpoint there may be some uh, uh changes in philosophy needed, but yeah, the endowment is is way off the pace for the rest of the Big 12. But UCF is also what uh what 40 years younger than the next school, right, which I think is Houston. Yeah. That's right. Right. Yeah, I think that's a big factor there too. So I think Bryson has something. Go ahead, Bryce. What do you got? Well, I'm just saying that, you know, if I would say there there'll be a certain subsect of UCF fans that as long as they're fans of both the football team and the men's basketball team, that they'll be that they will be excited to have another shot against Duke in another sport. In <laughs> of course, it, 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 of course, thinking back to that NCAA tournament matchup, Taco Fall versus Zion Williamson. I'm sure those people will be excited to have another yeah, shot. We're going to see that. We're going to see that program. footage during but, that bowl game all the time, aren't we? Oh, gonna it's going to suck. Oh, yeah. oh, it's gonna <laughs> suck so factor, much. Because Drew mentioned the Drew, the dual threat quarterback to watch out for, but I think there's another thing that we're going to be overlooking here. Remember how John Marshall during the Navy game really just had his way with the UCF offense. Well, I think that we could that we need to watch out for the the Duke defensive line because among that amongst that defensive line is one Dwayne Carter who is 11th in the in the nation in the for in force in force fumbles and fumbles recovered and he also and he also has six quarterback hurries on his season but he's not even the highest on his team in that rj oban who's a defensive end has nine qb hurries on the season i think that the duke defensive line is going to be something to watch out for and if john rice Plumley isn't a hundred percent or it isn't better for that game, like isn't better for that game, then I think that they're looking how they handle them is going to be something to watch. Yeah, no, I I like that you brought that up, Bryson, because the other piece that's important to analyze for this game is the same thing we analyzed for Isaiah Bauer, uh, Bowser last year going into the Gasparilla. 
this could be the healthiest that John Rice Plumley's been in weeks, right? In this particular situation, granted, it's uh, actually, no, he would have even more time than Isaiah Bowser did because this bowl is happening, what, five days later? So with all that in mind, Bryson, that attack, while still worthy of mention, taking nothing from you, I haven't had the opportunity to kind of see the disbursement of of those turnovers and what games they happened, how many he has per game, all that other sort of stuff, yet I haven't really gotten into the numbers as yet. Um, I've been uh, I've been analyzing other stuff. What can I say? But the punchline being um, that's the that's the counter argument to the defensive front being what it is. That being said, also, the secondary is good for nine interceptions as a squad. That's worthy of mention, I think, too. But again, I think the biggest takeaway is John Rice Plumley's health is going to be in a place it has been perhaps since what, guys? Certainly before Navy, right? Well, that brings up an interesting question. Uh, how much do you play him in this bowl game versus keeping him rested? I mean, we've had, you know, some, you don't want to get a serious bowling game injury that could affect you next year. John Rice Plumley announced on Monday that he's coming back in 2023. You already burned Thomas Castellanos as redshirt. Gus Malzahn said in the post game of the Tulane game that we would see more of Thomas here. Obviously, you got the extra practice time, but do you? could you see both of you real quick? Do you see both Plumley and Castellanos playing in the bowl game, maybe splitting the reps. I don't know so much splitting the reps, but you're going to see Thomas Castellanos play. Uh, he, you know, the red shirt's been burned, and and Gus made it pretty clear they're not going to waste it. You know, uh, you know, obviously the year of eligibility has been wasted, but they're at least going to use him to a certain extent after this. Uh, but you can't. I don't think you can openly rely on him. The game, as we saw, the game's too fast right now, and and for a true freshman quarterback. That's okay. That's normal. That's expected. You know, you don't get too many freshman quarterbacks that the game slows down enough that they can be, you know, uh, very, you know, functional and winning. You know, that's why they're not out there usually. So uh, he needs time. You know, he needs a, a good offseason program to study this stuff. But you know, get him a few more reps at this point. Uh, you know, work him in there a little bit. You know, I wouldn't put the game on the line with him. But uh, you know, what at this point. Bowl games are exhibition games. That's you know we we forget that they're exhibition games. So you know what? Put them on up there. You know get get them get him a little more game rep time. Yeah, he may get tossed around and he may you know struggle, but you know what? At this point, you burn the red shirt. You might as well take advantage of it. Drew, I could not disagree with you more. <laughs> in this particular ca category. Now, granted, this isn't me saying your points aren't well thought out. Drew, you have a very lucid, intelligent, well thought out process to make your point completely overruled. It's an <laughs> exhibition game, sure, but now it's the only uh, marketing tool or recruiting tool, I should say, that Gus has that reaches people the way a championship game uh, reaches people. And one could argue this game could reach people more depending on how many games it's competing with that day. I haven't checked the schedule, but the punchline is this, buddy. At the end of the day, you and I both know Castellanos isn't ready. You and I both know that he proved it in that champion championship game, and you and I both know he's not going to suddenly be a force over this short span of time to get done whatever he needs done. He needs a full offseason for that. Will we see him? Maybe, but he's not going to. It's not a guarantee in my mind, Drew, especially if this game is going to be as close as I'm thinking early that it might be, especially with, with players flying off. 
again and again. I'm sure we'll get into that later here in the podcast. But this is when I feel like Gus, based on how he's talked and done things in the past, he is going to push all his chips into the table. You're going to see John Rice Plumley play probably all of, if not, let's say, 80% of the offensive snaps. If Castellanos is in, the game is either guaranteed to be over because they're getting thumped or they're thumping Duke. I don't see either of those scenarios happening, though. There's just so much in my mind with the movement on offense to throw Castellanos in here in this game does a disservice to the program and the young man himself, frankly. I don't see what he would gain specifically. Now, will he see practice time like you talk about? Oh, absolutely. And I think that'll be valuable in his growth. But I, I... and I know you're going to uh, you may not necessarily agree on the importance of the the PR aspect of it and, and the 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 sentimental lacking a better word aspect of it doing something to kind of save the season sort of like the Gasparilla Bowl did last year. Now, maybe it won't do it to the same extent. As a matter of fact, I know that it won't. But being able to finish the year beating a power five team is going to be a big deal to this group. And I think that will impact how little time Castellanos gets in this bowl game, if any. Now the prosecution wish, wishes to rebut. <laughs> Go ahead. Uh, from, from, from a recruiting standpoint, I, I don't see this as actually going to really hold much water at all. Yeah, I do. Uh, early <laughs> signing day is going to happen beforehand. Uh, you're already going to get some guys from the portal already in. I don't think it's going to make a difference one way or the other on that. Uh, but to, to clarify... I don't see him playing meaningful time, but I think you're going to see some small pockets where he may play a play or two uh, just to be on the field. Uh, nothing, like nothing Joey meaningful. Gatewood style, right? Yeah, almost like Joey Gatewood, but maybe not as poorly. I think placed. you got to do a little bit more. You got to make, you got to turn this negative of losing his red shirt and turn it into a positive. And well, think- the positive is he gets on the field at all. The the truth is, uh, you can't put him out there and lose the game. You know, you you got to at least try to you you play to win the game. Uh, you you got to at least be working to win the game. And keep in uh, mind, so you have to balance. Let me add this too, real quick, Eric, to force him in there. And to Drew's point, if he loses the game, air quotes, or is perceived to being in part of a cast catastrophic mistake that swings the momentum, that actually could be a net negative on the young man and his psyche. So that yeah, exactly. You know, look at look at what happened with uh, in basketball with. Uh, with uh, Adam Adams, Adams uh, yeah. you know, he lost his he confidence, lost his confidence and never, never found himself. So well, I'm not it's saying part you just, of, it's part right, of the right. balancing act, right? I'm not saying you throw him to the wolves, but I do think if you can get him some meaningful snaps and have some positives from it, uh, going, moving forward, I think that's, that's a good goal to have in this game is it's not just him, by the way, some of your young guys, because, well, uh, you're going to have to play some young guys because you're going to be a little thin in certain positions. But mm-hmm. I think that's one of the goals more important to me, to be honest, than the bowl game. Nobody's going to remember who wins this bowl game five years from now. But I think it's important to get your guys that will be back and part of this team next year to the Big 12 some valuable, ex- some experience uh, moving forward, not just the quarterback. We focus on the quarterback because that's the the most popular position. And to that's focus, the but value of the practices. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because the guys who announced that they're going to the portal, the portal's open. They're gone. So, you know, next man up, you know, you're going to see a lot of Xavier Townsend, uh, you know, stepping in. You're, you're going to, you're, you know, maybe even, you know, going below that with like a Deontay Marks or something. Uh, you know, but you're you're going to see guys stepping in. Uh, you have to train a, hold, a holder, a brand new holder. Andrew Osteen's been holding the whole time, as we know from 
when the special teams works. Holder is a vital position. Fair. It can be the difference between a great kicker missing a kick and a good kicker making it. Uh, so, I mean, you have to break in a whole new guy at that point. So that's what these practices are all about, is about getting that next generation of guy some some exposure and get them ready. This this is almost like, uh, you know, you have spring, you have fall practice, you have spring practice. This is like halfway, half spring practice. Where you got, <laughs> it's not spring ball, but you, you, you're getting a chance of seeing the future today by giving them just a little bit of extra time to, to work and learn. That's why these bowl, you know, as Kyle knows from his experience, you know, with all these bowl game interviews with head football coaches, what's the one thing they care about out That's of the correct. bowl games? It's the practices. It's not all this other stuff. It's not even the game itself. It's the practices. So that's what's going to be the focus. It's getting these new guys, uh, some practice time, some exposure, and and allow the game to start coming to them a little bit more. You know, that's what's going to help uh, Tommy Castellanos. He's the number two guy now. He's going to be getting second team reps. They may even throw him a little bit on the first team just to do some work and try to build some chemistry. So yeah, yeah, no, yeah I, I, I think those practices are super super valuable. So we're gonna, yeah, we're going to have more on the bowl game. UCF Duke leading up to December 28th here on Black and Gold and Banneret. Uh, but we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we mentioned a lot of new young guys playing in the bowl game. Why? Because there's a lot of guys that entered the portal. When we come back, we're going to play the game, folks. Who's in the portal? Plus, I will tell you why the most significant player UCF lost this week never played a snap here. Find out who that is when we come back. This is the Black and Gold Banneret Podcast. Welcome back here to the Black and Gold Banneret Podcast. Eric Lopez, along Kyle Nash, Drew Glukoff, Bryson Turner. Je- Jeff Sharon is in the transfer portal. One of many UCF people in the transfer portal this week, which brings us to a game that we're going to call Who's in the Portal, everybody? The way this is going to work. Our young friend Bryson Turner will name a player that entered the portal for UCF this week, and Drew will Kyle will break down the significance of that loss moving forward. All right, we'll move with that. Bryson, you uh, who's the first name you're going to bring up? Well, since we sort of talked about him in the last segment, let's go ahead and just get him out of the way right now. Andrew Osteen. Who wants to go first? I mean, special teams is your house, buddy. Uh, well, it's true. Well, uh, you know, this was a case that that uh, Andrew Osteen is going to go down in the record books at UCF as being one of the best punters the school has had. Uh, however, this year he battled inconsistency and was replaced by Mitch McCarthy, who, you know, is taller than Kyle. And, <laughs> Not taller. Uh, he's just pretty close. <laughs> uh, he, he is. He's, he is pretty. He makes me look short because I'm only five foot nine. So what do you expect? Uh, but. He uh, he's shown to have a good leg. Needs to work on his his uh, finesse a little bit more and some of the and some of those uh, coffin corner kicks. But you know it's a work in progress. Uh, that's where Andrew Osteen actually excels at was at those with punt accuracy. Uh, they actually started using him in situational punting late in the year, but you know he has one year of eligibility left as a grad transfer uh, and wants a chance to start. I mean, who wants to be the second punter on a team? No, I don't blame him at all. Uh, this is not a significant loss for UCF since they already have a replacement in place that was doing better. Um, but it is sad to see a guy who has done a lot for the program to go. 
Hey, listen, the portal giveth and it taketh away, man. And this is one that they can afford to lose. I'm with you. McCarthy's done a fantastic job. I met him too. Pretty cool guy. And and didn't, I believe he's connected in some portion to rugby back in Australia. I, I forget exactly, but that should prove he has the hands to do the job as a holder. I think he'll be, I think UCF in general will be just fine. And, uh, and if something does go wrong on a kick, somebody will listen to this and start yelling at me. All right, Bryson, who's <laughs> next? Bryson, who's next in the portal? All right. we Let's go ahead and go with a pair of defensive backs that didn't really get, get a lot of playing time. Let's address them really quickly. First, we have a red, red, we have red shirt sophomore, and um, apologies if I, mis, if I mispronounce, I'm going to try, Phil J. Bienemy. And then we and then we and we also have another defensive back. He is a redshirt junior. He only saw the field twice today. He was originally a JUCO transfer from Sierra College. Trevion Shadrick Harris. Pair defense. All right. So let, let, let's start with uh, with uh, Bill J. You know, obviously, you know, been on the team a few years. Has been on the scout team. Scout team is actually a very valuable thing. Uh, helps you prep for your opponent. Uh, and and so you you know. While people are like, oh, it's a guy who never saw the field. Well, he saw the field in a different way, and and there's value in that. So to be a good player on the scout team, you have to be able to change your style on the fly, because it's based on what you're going, you know, what the the scheme of uh, the opposing defense is going to be. So you have to have some some intelligence to be able to do that. Uh, obviously, he 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 was able to do it for a couple of seasons. Uh, so you you know you're losing some depth in a position that's actually losing a lot. So, you know, there may have been an opportunity for him to work up, you know, with three years of eligibility left. But, you know, obviously he wants a chance elsewhere uh, because he wasn't cracking the two deep within UCF this year. Uh, you know, the chance of getting a Division One, even an FCF's offer may be difficult. That being said, if there's a guy that's qualified to bring a guy up to speed quickly, I think it is Travis Williams. Say what you will about the performance of the defense overall. A lot of guys who are young came up to speed quickly, right, Drew? When it came to the beginning of the year, even Coach Malzahn himself said that the defensive front, specific, specifically the linebackers, were a point of concern. And lo and behold, they found a way to get a guy with uh, uh, at or more tackles than Tatum Bethune, who UCF fans were lamenting at this time so at the end of the day you're right about the scout team but if anybody's gonna be qualified as a coach or to to solve for that problem i think it'll be travis williams group they're really good at bringing guys up to speed who have the talent to do so i'm not really so worried about those those particular guys all right bryson who is who, who is next on who entered the portal this week well, just real quick, Drew, does that same thing that you said about Phil J apply to Trevion as well? Uh, I, I was actually going to jump in at, at the end and, and mention Trevion. Uh, oh, yeah. I actually think uh, he may be a, a more material loss. This is a guy who has a lot of experience, uh, came from the JUCO ranks, and and actually did play a little bit. Then you know, uh, playing a couple games this year, uh, squeezed in in some in some garbage time. So obviously there there was a chance of getting on the field there, and you know. It, as a redshirt junior, you're you're a bit of an elder statesman as far as uh, physical age, which you know can help with mentoring young, uh, younger players. Uh, so there there is value in those older players. Uh, but as, as Kyle has said, you know uh, this is a team uh, a coaching staff that can that can get players uh, at least to a serviceable level early. 
and by using the success of the transfer portal in the linebacking core, and they have two years of definitive proof of success, they can probably convert that into the defensive backfield. All right. All right, Eric, go ahead. All right. Who else entered the portal? All right. He was originally a transfer to UCF from Notre Dame in the May, in May of 2021. He participated in nine games over the course of two seasons with the program. It's redshirt sophomore wide receiver Jordan Johnson. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, you know, it's bad when, when you, you post a tweet uh, in response to someone about uh, this and another player, uh, Terrence Lewis, transferred both for five-star recruits. And my response was, it goes to show that rating stars to high school players is not an exact science. And then the guy you're talking about, Jordan Johnson, likes the tweet. <laughs> <laughs> now, I don't know if that, if that was to make you feel guilty because, well, my, my guilt and shame left ages ago. Uh, the, the truth is uh, this shows that rating high school players, their stars, is not exact science. Jordan Johnson came in with a lot of hype. You know, he actually he joined last year, same time as Brandon Johnson from Tennessee, but only one of them actually made any difference during their time at UCF, and it wasn't Jordan. Uh, yeah, the guy that went on to the pros. Yeah, Brandon Johnson. Now the Denver Broncos caught his first touchdown. Uh, you know, obviously, uh, pro legacy has been cemented. Uh, Jordan Johnson, not so much. He he fell down in the depth charts, has not been able to climb back up, and. You know, he's going to his third school now. So, I mean, you call that kind of a – that's a bust. Yeah, I can't agree more. Drew laid it down nicely. In his defense, there were a lot of other guys that came in that brought a myriad of talent and speed in their own right. It was a deep room, and that depth was eventually what drowned uh, Jordan Johnson's chances. And, hey, listen, call me biased, but when I hear Jordan Johnson, I still think of the former center. That's what I, I did. That's what I was so confused when I saw that. I seriously, I'm like, wait a minute. I thought he already moved on. Like, what do you mean? He, he's still here? No way. That's not the lineman. Anyway. Oh, yeah. The only time Jordan Johnson, uh, that Jordan Johnson was on UCF's field was when he was an assistant. Cincinnati staff. Yeah. So, okay. Cincinnati staff. Correct. All right. All right, Bryson. Who else? Enter the portal. Well, Drew mentioned his name a sec, a name a sec in the last one, so let's go ahead and do and for him next. He mentioned that he's another five star recruit recruit at a high school. He missed most of the 2021 season with a torn ACL. We knew he was going to transfer in September, but now he is officially in the portal. It is linebacker Terrence Lewis. Yeah, um, I know this one had a lot of hype, and all it did. Yeah, there was the controversy that came with uh, uh, some charges that were ultimately dropped in, in the offseason, uh, never really cracked anything, and then by September was already talking about leaving the program. Uh, you know, five-star recruit, was the number one linebacker coming out of high school, went to Maryland, tore his ACL, missed his entire freshman year, came down here, and and might as well had the same thing happen because he he, he did nothing. And and this is one of those cases where I think the team is actually going to be better with him not there for an attitude reason. Oof, you're calling addition by subtraction. That's a rough go. And here's the thing, though, Drew, I don't think you're wrong necessarily. If a guy's checked out by September, he wasn't contributing much in the first place. That's clearly true. And as we said, we've already uh, we've already established two successful seasons of bringing guys in the defensive front up to speed quickly. And by the way, you got a lot of guys that are now air quotes 
veterans or at least second year guys, right? Guys who have played before in college, we'll say, that have already made their mark just so. I'm more concerned about the defensive line than I am the linebackers this year, but that's a whole other conversation I'm sure we'll get to later. I'm with you on this one, Drew, with Terrence Lewis. All right, Bryson, who is next on Who Enter the Portal? Well, Eric, didn't you tease earlier about someone that a, a transfer that didn't take a snap? Uh, th- that was a big. Yeah, but uh, what, he did not enter the portal. That's a tease. But we still got a couple names right, that have not it. been brought up in the portal, right, just... including right. go, a quarterback. Yes. So now we enter the players in the portal who got a good amount of playing time in or field time, I should say, because Osteen did get on the field a lot in 2022. We knew this was coming. It's quarterback Mikey Keene. All right. So I, I, as as people know, we have our a, a little Twitter message thread between us Banneret people. And we've been saying it since day one, the moment that uh, the starter was named, Mikey Keene was going to transfer at the end of the year. And right. lo and behold, Mikey Keene is transferring at the end of the year. Worst kept secret. Uh, you know, he he stepped in when he needed to as a freshman and and learned a trial by fire, stepped in when he needed to as a sophomore, uh, played his four games, maintaining his redshirt. The the problem with Mikey is that he's gonna be dogged in his legacy by not playing in the conference championship game, and that's not fair. At all. Uh, at all. Not fair at all. Uh, you have to look at the whole bell of work. Uh, you know, this team and him could have laid down and died last year. No, they they actually excelled and won the Gasparro Bowl over Florida. Uh, that didn't necessarily have to happen. Uh, and this was a guy who worked really hard at his craft. And in fact, you know, his transfer actually may co- have helped lead another player to transfer. Uh, but I mean, this is really a, a bad, a, a, a poorly kept secret that it was going to happen. I mean, Gus said we're we're, gonna, we're working on keeping his red shirt, and yeah, I mean, sure, he he at the, you know, after the USF game in the heat of the moment, said, yeah, sure, I'll play, and then reality set in, like, oh God, what did I just done? Uh, and and you know, his own personal common sense took place, but or so or people fair. around him probably told him, "What did you do? What did you just say?" You know, well, it's the thing. heat of the moment. I mean, it's you're 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 coming off this emotional high that you stepped in and orchestrated the you know uh, to help win the game. Uh, you know, you're not really thinking whole big picture, rational logic, all that uh, at that well, very it, moment. It, it, it's a polarizing it was a trap. It was a gotcha question. It had to be asked, yeah, had to but be it was, asked. but I mean, he, you're on the spot. I, I don't blame him for answering it incorrectly. You're, you're running on adrenaline still. You got the emotional high. You got the endorphins going through you. I mean, you're going to be like, yeah, let's go run through a brick wall now. Uh, so I, I don't blame well, But he him. made a polarizing decision that quite frankly is, it's going to, some people obviously support it. Others don't. I mean, that's, it's going to okay. dog him. And that's it's okay. Dog him. Yeah, and no question. That's part of the resume. That's part of the legacy. I mean, my goodness, they definitely brought it right. up on the team. That's not fair. That, but that it's part of the story. Be, it's part, part of the story. Of, but that's that should not be a leading part of the story. That that problem is it's going to be recency bias here. That's well, going to dog people outside what he of did UCF, last think, year. Right. It's gonna, what, it's going to overshadow it. Here's what I don't agree on: is how it'll over it won't overshadow it permanently right and let me tell you what i draw from because there's actual history here drew first of all for my money sometimes 
a breakup is best for both sides. I think this is best for Mikey Keene. I think this is best for UCF moving forward, um, as it would turn out, too, because if the biggest thing they have to uh, rebuild on offense in most of uh, the opinions of this panel, if not all of us, is the offensive line, then Mikey Keene should be out like a fat kid in dodgeball, and he's going to serve himself well doing it, let me be clear. That all being said, the reason why I don't think this will matter as much, Drew, is, well, let's take it to a practical example, something I saw personally happen with the pushback of one Leonard Farnett not playing in the Citrus Bowl under Coach Oshawn with LSU. Why would I mention that? That has nothing to do with UCF. That's a great question, guys. Here's where it does matter. Five years later, in that very same room, I'm talking with Kurt Ferentz, who is the Iowa head coach, and then uh, the University of Kentucky's head coach, Mark Stoops, I think it is. Um, but the punchline is both of them were able to comment on how commonplace that players opting out of that game was just five years later. We're oh, it was a game changer. We're going to have that very same thing happen. Well, McCaffrey, too. McCaffrey of Stanford. Was at right, the same but I time. wasn't in the room for that one. Work with me. Eric. Oh, it's all about you. Gotcha. <laughs> it's the Kyle show. I got right. you. Right, right, exactly. No, um, but no, you're right. Uh, 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 Run CMC was another example, too. Um, I think it's different with McCaffrey. Honestly, I make the joke about me not being there. I think McCaffrey's different because he was going to be so obviously a game changer in the NFL where there were still some critics, right or wrong, about Fournette's chances in the league. That all being said, I say the above to say this. Um, just those five years later, both those coaches I mentioned, in particular Ferentz, who's the oldest active coach in uh, uh, coaching Iowa still to this day, having the same attitude, you know, that it's commonplace. Other coaches have resisted it, all that other stuff. So I say all that to say in the next few years, fans will come around to see that what Mikey Keene did will be commonplace at major programs. And in some cases, in the environment we're living in, this is going to be correct. The thing that will be scrutinized overly so later will be that one series that Thomas Castellanos played in the Temple game that was completely unnecessary in the grand scheme of things as it would work out, right? So at the end of the day, um, Mikey Keene, I, I, like I said, sometimes the breakup is best for both parties, and I think this is one of those instances. I do agree with you, Kyle. This will be more common. I think the difference is, though, bowl games – like it or not, like Drew mentioned earlier, there's a lot of people who are like, yeah, whatever, it's a bowl game, it's an exhibition, that's fine. You should skip that. There's going to be people, like, there were former players that were outspoken on social media that you, you're passing up on a chance to win a conference championship game. These and I think also, this, and I think former players with sour grapes that didn't have the option of transferring these, either. Well, I, these are former players that played during a time that the redshirt rules were different. Bingo. But also, but okay. I'm glad you both are bringing this up. So I, because... I do agree with you. This will continue. There will be players that will skip on playoff games when it expands because of the same rule. So I, I, I'm glad you're bringing this up because I do agree with that. Here's the thing: the only players that owe, are owed an explanation is the the teammates. If if the if the seniors on that team are cool with Mikey Keene's decision, then that's it. Those are the ones that matter, not the people outside. Because those are the players that are trying to win a championship. So that that's to me. But anyway, we've spent a ton of time on it. Well, uh, on that, in I that. just want to throw that it is not coincidence that the portal date, the new portal date starts now. This would also be the time of players opting out of bowls. It's the same concept. Right. And I think it'll continue probably as, even with the playoff expanding. Last thing, and then we'll move on. 
would for all parties, UCF, Keen, everybody, would they have just been better off announcing early in the year, hey, man, I'm going to transfer after this year, but I'm going to stick around. I'll help as best as I can. I'll play in four games. Because I feel like this just – it just kept hovering, man. It kept hovering. Why can't we just be honest? Like, everybody, it was the worst secret in the world, Drew. You mentioned it. Why don't we just come out and say, you know what, I'm going to leave after the year, but I'm going to be the backup, and I'll play in four games. Because you don't do that. A good teammate doesn't do that. You, you know, you're in your last year of your contract in the NFL. Yeah, I'm going to go test free agency with the season ends. How do you think the rest of the teammates are going to feel about that? Uh, the I think they already are... knew that, though. You don't well, think the players knew it's that? Not, but it doesn't. It doesn't matter. You don't go out. You don't. You don't air that laundry. You don't. You don't make it public. You, right. know, you, you, you put your head down because remember, he's also auditioning for another another job somewhere else, and you don't want to bring that dirty, you know, the dirty laundry to the surface like that. Oh yeah, but, but it it brought, instead it brought to the surface at the end. Well, that's that's actually when you're supposed to. Yeah, the, the only championship problem, week. Well, <laughs> championship the week the is year. better than the entire season, Elo. And and the NFL example is different because hey, listen, if they do well at the end of the day, the team may end up paying him. That's different. All and, right, and let me. All right, all right. I think the JRP Mikey Keen debate would have been much more heated had he not he announced he was leaving early because then we would have known earlier, like. Oh my gosh, Gus like drove away Mikey, and that would get people in Mikey's I think camp. That, like, I, think that's, I think that's still. I think that's still out there, though. I think that's well, out there. Now regardless. it's going to be because you don't he's want opponents. That he's trans- you can't. It's over. You can't. You can't argue that part. You don't want opponents knowing that stuff either. All right, that's fair. That's a good point. So how about this? Let me ask you this: If you're Gus, would you do it again? Would you come to an agreement with a player to stick and in, in moving forward? Hey, if you could stick around, we won't play you more than four games. Is that a good idea, or, or are you better off just letting the guy go? If, uh, if you, imagine forward. what would happen if they let him go. How would that have worked out? Maybe I mean, would. Maybe. Pro- but what happened on the field speaks for itself. Maybe uh, would have. Maybe would have gotten Thomas more better prepared for playing. Uh, you can mm-hmm. add a few more losses to UCF's record. Correct. All right, moving forward. And not not every quarterback is Mikey Keene who can slot in uh, slot into the to the position as a true freshman and at least you know hold the fourth down. Well, everyone has. A I think I think this this portion ceiling. this portion pretty much tells you that this this topic has will the quarterback room will define the twenty twenty two season. All right, but he's not the only one that has entered the portal. Arguably, his favorite target entered the portal, didn't he, Bryson? Yes, I, I was I was initially going to save him for last, but all right, we'll talk about him now. He was named All-AAC second team this season after catching 73 receptions for 725 receiving yards, five TDs, and he rushed for 23 times for 222 rushing yards. He has one last season of eligibility that he's going to use to play elsewhere. It is wide receiver Ryan O'Keefe. All right, I have no problem with players who play for four years at a school to say, hey, I want to try something different for my last year of eligibility. I've got no problems with that. Uh, Ryan O'Keefe has left it all on the field. He owes this program nothing at this point. Uh, he's been an excellent teammate. When they said they had to find ways to get him the ball, he made himself available and worked to be the best guy he could be on the field. Uh, we saw his break, his the, the signs of his breakout uh, in the Gus Melzahn system in 2021 spring game. Uh, when uh, Jalen Robinson struggled, he excelled. We saw that transition onto the field. And then fast forward year, you've got Javon Baker and Kobe Hudson brought in, and then you start seeing O'Keefe's presence on the field start to shrink. Not that he's not not good, because that's that's not true at all, but just the dynamics of the team have changed. 
the talent pool is improved. And, and you're going to see this continue to happen. So, you know, this is actually a great time for Ryan to say, you know what, I want to go try something different. My favorite quarterback's gone. Uh, I'm going to be gone. Uh, you know, this, you know, still sky's the limit for a speedster like O'Keefe. Uh, but I, the thing is, uh, it, I'm not overly surprised that he left, uh, especially how he was starting to fade as the season went on when, when Kobe Hudson was back and healthy and everything. Uh, and, I, and I'm not surprised that, you know, as a senior with four years that he wants to go try something different, you know, got speed. No, listen, Drew, everything you said is right. I don't have a problem with it either. I just don't know that it's the best move for him. As far as a blow to UCF, pretty bleeding huge. It, I, I think this is probably the biggest offensive hit outside of maybe when Isaiah Bowser decides he's going to, if he decides not to play in the bowl game, um, you know, to go to the NFL, that might be the biggest uh, wound to the offense in general. But until that happens, if it does, O'Keefe, in my mind, is the biggest impact, no question. You mentioned yourself the way he can make plays basically anywhere in space. Sure, he struggled with drops at times and had an injury issue early in the year. But at the end of the day, Drew, Ryan O'Keefe's a big deal. Newsflash, he pretty fast. That being said, his size leaves something to be desired. How much impact he can make at another place that would get him more shine for draft status or maybe or any of that, I don't know that, that that's the best fit. I would hate to see what happened to him, uh, the same being, being that what happened to Jalen Robinson with his departure from UCF. I think he was doing well, especially with UCF emerging into the Big 12, taking the G5 le uh, label off of him, Doing have an opportunity to put more quality film in against Big 12 opponents in an offense with which he's familiar and certain to get a number of touches. We cannot guarantee that as football analysts at his next stop. Granted, we don't know what that is yet. Maybe he'll go somewhere and I'll be like, you know what? That's a fit. Never mind. I was wrong. I have to see what that fit is first. But yeah, this is a big, fat, hairy deal. And, uh, you know, of course, I wish his success, but I am concerned for him just the same way I was. Jalen Robinson this time last year. Yeah, I think like, that perhaps Ryan O'Keefe may follow Mikey where he goes. Uh, it's possible. I mean, I, I think O'Keefe is best served at a G5 school where you can be a, an undersized speedster and, and function really well. Uh, you know, uh, Keen, Keen has, a, I think, a little more flexibility. You know, there there's some low-end Power 5 conference schools like such as, you know, the Arizona schools that can maybe use a player like that, that, that their programs are kind of in uh you know disarray as it's as it is you're calling for the noah vedral route okay well, there you go. yeah go home there's nothing wrong with going home who said there was all right uh bryson let's go ahead and name the rest of the guys that enter the portal because drew has informed us he will not burn his red shirt and stick around for a third segment so but okay. go ahead and give us the rest of the names all right, we have a pair of defensive players. First off, we returned first we returned to the secondary with junior cornerback Devontae Brown, and then we have the we, the only returner in the linebacker core, at least that had a major amount of playing time from last season. He was one of the team captains even though he missed 3 games. He was second in, on the team in solo in total and solo tackles. It is linebacker Jeremiah Jean Baptiste. All right, I, I think Devontae Brown is the largest loss on this team. Uh. And, par and part of that is because of the defensive position that he's in. You know, you're playing, you're a corner. Uh, 
Newt Wilson has declared for the NFL draft. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, there is not much else there. You know, you have uh, Corey Thornton, who's been very hot and cold. Uh, you know, uh, you know, Brandon Adams is very hot and cold. Uh, Devontae Brown was your best, you know, corner on this team. And, you know, I, the, the struggles that they had was more scheme than talent. So him and declaring with two years left of eligibility, that hurts. Uh, Cause there's not much left. Uh, Jeremiah Jean Paptiste uh, obviously dealt with uh, some injuries throughout the year. Uh, he has really grown uh, taking over for Eric Gilliard last year and really rose as a leader in the defense, but much like Ryan O'Keefe, four-year player has that one year left of eligibility. Uh, you know that I kind of I I kind of give the you know a a salute of respect. And unlike O'Keefe, Gene Baptiste can go anywhere and and fit in. He can go to a P five and work in it. He's got he's got the size. He's got the power. He's got uh, enough. Uh, speed that he, he can make the know. impact that Tatum Bethune did for Florida State. I feel like that's a very similar move here. Like I feel he can't. Like- I I think Bethune was a better player, uh, but Gene Paptiste has uh, has a lot of upside. I don't think we've seen the best of him yet. Good call. Uh, um, you know, he dealt with some injuries earlier this year, and then you know just was never quite the same after that. You know, Jason Johnson just you know exploded and became the tackle machine that he was expected to be coming out of the the FCS ranks, but. The reason why I don't view Gene Baptiste as the biggest loss is look what Gus and his team has done over the past two years in fixing holes in the linebacking core. They're really good at it. They had Bryson Armstrong last year who would have had even better stats if it wasn't for a season-ending injury, and Jason Johnson and Walter Yates this year who have done really well. Uh, so I, I have very high hopes of be, of them being able to, to, to cover the loss of Gene Baptiste more so than the loss of Devontae Brown. Well, there's a bit of a misnomer in that, pointing pointing that out, Drew, because a lot of the uh, secondary on the defense was experienced already and had stayed around for the previous year, so there was ne- less need to get new guys to come in. That being said, this will be a very interesting experiment to see if what they did with the defensive front expands to the secondary. I think Jeremiah Jean-Baptiste as an individual player is a bigger loss than Devontae Brown, but I like the point you make in the aggregate that overall, because the depth is going to drop so quickly in the secondary, that you can make the argument that he is a bigger loss because having Brown back would at least give you something for the secondary to lean on. Kind of like Richie Grant staying around one more year with all the guys that had left before his year and him eventually becoming an Atlanta Falcon, right? So I, I, I get where you're going. I think Baptiste is a bigger loss as a singular player, but obviously those are two huge impacts on defense. The part of the ball that many fans would think that the biggest, bigger struggle currently exists, right? Well, and you mentioned it, Drew. Devon Wilson on Wednesday announced he's declaring for the NFL draft. Uh, mm-hmm. Kyle, you cover the NFL on a daily basis. What was your reaction to that? I Is he ready for the NFL? Is this kind of like, hey, I'm just going to get out and make some money? I mean, what, what was your reaction to it? For my money, the safety position is one that's lacking in the NFL in general. So the bar is lower. And this isn't me thinking, I saying I think that Devod Wilson won't make it. I have no problems with Newt trying to get that bag. And, you know, 
I think he's still going to be a third day draft pick at the end of the day. That all being said, when the safety position is more about intelligence than athleticism, what he's going to have to try to prove is that he's smart enough to step into a scheme at a whole other gear in speed uh, than he would be currently certainly playing a majority of G5 opponents in his tenure at UCF. That being said, like I said, the, the safety position, the bar is lower because the amount of good safeties there are is relatively no, low. Teams typically don't want to pay a lot for a safety compared to, let's say, a star edge rusher or anything like that. I don't necessarily dislike the decision. So here's a, here's a question I want to pose to you both, Drew and Kyle. So UCF got six interceptions over the course of the entire season. Five of those interceptions are now gone. Three from Newt Wilson and two from Devontae Brown. Well, yeah, I mean, we go back to scheme there. Correct. Uh, you know, when you when you play that far back, you're, you're not going to get many interceptions. You know, the last one against Tulane was because you know, Michael Pratt got hit on the throw. So that's a credit to the de- to the defensive line. I believe it was Tremont Morris Brash that hit him. Correct. Uh, that caused Duck to go in the air, and it was a gift wrap to Devontae Brown. Uh, so, you know, if you play that far back, it's like think about investing in stunts. You know, you you bump up, you're, you're investing. There's risk, but there's reward. Uh, if you play further back, you're not taking as much risk from the standpoint of the guys aren't going to get over the top of you. Uh, but there's less reward. You're not going to cause turnovers. I love the way we both use the term risk reward to explain this. Term. This makes me very happy. <laughs> it's like there we know go. each other or something. Well, with all due respect to all those names we just mentioned, we did a great job breaking down every name that's moved on uh, via the portal or yeah, so far point. as of Wednesday afternoon as we record this at 4 o'clock. So if you hear other names that you're like, wait, what about? Uh, so, well, yeah, that's when we recorded uh, on that. But to me, guys, and this will be the last thing we discuss before we move on, Monday, longtime commit offensive lineman Jamal Merriweather flipped his commitment from UCF to Georgia. Normally, we don't. I make a big deal of that. The only reason I make a big deal of this and why I think this is the most significant news of the of the, all the guys Monday, you two, Drew, and Kyle have discussed about all the flaws in the offensive line mm-hmm. and how they got to address that to be competitive in the Big 12 moving forward. And I think that is a huge question. As of right now, the only high school commitment that UCF has right now is Jonathan Klein. Okay? Uh, and in the 20, and, and, and only signed one high school commit in the 22 class in Caton Kittler. Probably suggest they're going to go to the portal to address the offensive line. But I think that's always a kind of a risk-reward type of deal. We don't know. I'm concerned about the offensive line, and and you you know and listen, you understand the young man. He's going to Georgia. He's the best team in the country. He's, he's from and Georgia. He's from Georgia. I get right. that, but I'm concerned. Can this can the staff get the right offensive lineman to help them this program move in the Big Twelve, guys? Last thoughts. Well, it's going to take time. It's going to take time. Uh, th- this is going to be the area that they're going to hurt the most. Uh, even guys they have on there right now, they're they're a little undersized. You're going to need some beef. You're talking Midwestern teams, you know, the Great Plains. A lot of corn-fed kids there. they got sides. Uh, it's going to take time to, to adjust your personnel to fit that. They don't have it now. They're not going to have it by next year. Uh, that's going to be the biggest area. And one reason why John Rice Plumbing announcing that he's coming back for 2023, he did formally announce that he, on, on his social media 
He is coming back. But a player like him who can tuck and run when the offensive line breaks down has value. Uh, and the, the, the truth is it's tough to, to recruit offensive linemen. It's always been tough. Uh, you know, George O'Leary, that was his thing. But even then, you know, it was still a challenge. You know, there's plenty of skilled position players in Florida. Uh, you, you know, the challenge is finding the offensive lineman. You've got to look elsewhere. And as we know with the portal, it's it's a crapshoot. You really don't know what you're getting. And how well they're going to fit once you get them, too. I mean, Terrence Lewis was the conversation we had. That's a perfect fit. Worse over, Drew, to your point, yeah, I think they're going to attack the transfer portal, and they need more recruits to have in the cupboard because here's the thing, buddy. Sam Jackson's gone. What veteran presence are they going to have other than Matt Lee? Uh, I, that's that's a tough question to answer. So, you know, uh, it, uh, yeah, at the end of the day, that's a big, I think Eric's right. I think there's a big impact, but at the end of the day, I am not going to rule out Gus recruiting like his hair is on fire and putting some beef on the grill there for that fire to get something cooking uh, in the trenches. Well, they solve for everything in one year. That is a tall ask, but if they can account for 60% of the line to be, quote, Big 12-sized, Big 12 caliber, Power 5 caliber, however you want to put it, um, that would be a success in my mind. Yeah, you're looking at potentially four or five players plus that were in the two deep that aren't going to be there next year. That's a and lot. You, and you thought chemistry and, and, and gelling was an issue this year. Well, and that's yeah. going to be an issue. And, and again, we don't know as of this recording, the Big 12 schedule could come out any day, any week now, no matter what it looks like, it's going to be the most difficult schedule in the history of this program. Six road games, we know that. Five in conference, plus the road trip at Boise State. You know, we've talked a lot on this show about growing pains with the basketball programs, going to the Big 12. Maybe some of us better start accepting the fact there's going to be some growing pains on the football side. I think some people have kind of been in denial on that. But I think this year, going into next year, maybe it's proven, we've shown that maybe we're going to have some growing pains going into that Big 12 next year that maybe... Don't be surprised if this team is going to have to fight just to get to a B-Bowl eligible next year. Well, and the truth is, you know, in, in many circles, seven wins is, you know, is, is okay in a power conference. You know, where, you know, remember, UCF is a, is a big fish in a small pond. It's easy to get 10 wins yeah. in a G5 conference. Well, that's what always, it's, we heard about that, why UCF didn't make the playoff. It's like, yes, on a one-game scenario, you can compete with a power five, but can you compete with them? Throughout the duration of a season, the bot, you know, that's going to be the challenge as you make this, if you adjust to this league. Yeah, I, I think, you know, seven, eight wins is going to be your ceiling next yeah. year. Yeah. And that's ceiling, not, not, I, I think realistically it's going to be five to six. Uh-oh. Um, you know, but, you know, as we know, there's a lot of 50 50 balls. It really depends on uh, how the schedule fully shakes out. We know most of the teams that we're going to see, but we don't know exactly how it's going to play out as far as when and where they play, uh, that I think that's going to matter as far as their ability to put together a winning team. Yeah, I agree. I agree. All right, Drew, we're going to let you go. We're not going to burn your red shirt. We're going to be much more responsible uh, as you mm-hmm. hopped out of the last segment here, sir. Uh, but thank you as always. Yeah, I'm going to save the rest of my eligibility because the transfer portal already said we, we don't want you. <laughs> well, then you better – at least we brought you back. Yeah, we got you back. <laughs> you, you, you know, we kept your scholarship – uh, for you, Drew. Uh, we, thanks for uh, joining us, Drew. All right. Till next time. All right. We're going to wrap it up. Kyle's going to stay with us as Bryson. We'll talk some basketball. Some good news on the men's side. Hey, women. Ooh. Ugh.
plus volleyball once again season ends in the second round and an end of a legacy we'll discuss what that all means when we wrap up this edition of the black and gold banner at podcast and welcome back here to the black and gold banneret podcast final segment of the show eric lopez here with kyle nash and bryce we're gonna talk some hoops first let's start on the positive the men with an overtime win over sanford uh a sun battle there old a sun rivals back in the way days there (laughs) uh kyle you were there for the overtime thriller working extra time uh your thoughts on the game ucf Boy, it was tight. Very fortunate to win the game. Sanford had a chance to win in regulation. Really nice team, uh, back and forth game. Your thoughts there, UCF pulling out the victory. Yeah, and listen, both both teams definitely had a shot to close it out in regulation. And and listen, credit to Samford for all the times that Coach Johnny Dawkins in postgame has talked about the importance of foul shots. The Bulldogs put on a clinic there, Elo. The first 12 shots including all of the free throws in the first halves were makes keeping that game close i think it was 33 31 at the half something like that most of that was due to their work hitting the foul line and shooting uh jump shots and everything from a distance they weren't going to beat anybody with their size they know that going in but even their center pulled up for two three pointers of his own on the evening just to keep people honest now you know say what you will in that scenario about um logan die but (laughs) when when you see the guy sitting back and he looks him in the face and pops the three no he made three of them i beg your pardon that's the kind of versatility in team this is this is the kind of stuff you come to know and love from an nba team everybody can can, can chuck it from three but not everybody's going to necessarily battle in the paint you know that being said ucf did have their share of free throws and did their right i believe it was 23 for 34 yes it was so uh, the, a lot of the misses came in the overtime period both teams were obviously exhausted and struggling at the end there but give credit cj kelly once again doing his thing as a leader made a huge shot he got the in one but missed the free throw that's what kept this game close though a lot of back and forth in the overtime it ran pretty long because both teams were in double bonuses but <laughs> get this stat for the Bulldogs, 24 or 29 from the three uh, free throw line. That's how they got most of their 77 points, Elo, no question. But their uh, free throw shooting, uh, as far as makes, tailed off in overtime as well. By the end of the game in its entirety, they had three players foul out. To see a team like this outlast a team that not only averaged 86 points a game in regulation, by the way, going into this contest, they also averaged, according to uh, Coach Dawkins in the post game, about 27 free throw shots yep. a game. So to see this group outlast this group um, with pure resolve was fun to watch and shock. Here's a shock. Taylor Hendricks, a big part of it, Elo, from the field, missing precisely one shot. He's pretty good at this game of basketball there. A um, couple thoughts here, Kyle. You obviously got to spend a lot of time talking to Coach Dawkins after the game. First, Status on C.J. Walker, who didn't play on Sunday in the win against Sanford. Obviously, you got Tarleton at home coming up next Sunday. Mm-hmm. Then you go on the road for the first time all year at Ole Miss before going to Sunrise, Florida, to play Missouri. What's the status of C.J. Walker, what Coach Dawkins told you? You know, based on what he said, uh, it, it, it feels like reading the tea leaves that this is an element of load management. In a game like this in particular, where size isn't going to be the hugest factor, 
it might have been one where he opted to float C.J. Walker. Yeah, he's probably the most versatile shooter of the big men, but really in that game, you're looking for Lehat Toon and Michael Durr to take care of business and dominate in the paint, which both guys did and fulfilled their job. Um, for me, the test was going to be the guards and trying to and, and, and the guards and the forwards, you know, the one, two, and three spots to kind of attack and 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 grab rebounds and use their size in, in the backcourt. UCF had to do a lot of rotating defensively and a lot of movement. And if you have a guy that's limited with a leg injury or trying to come back from something, good way, good time to hold out CJ Walker in that particular instance. And of course, we mentioned uh, Darius Johnson as well coming back. This would have been his second game back from injury. You had asked about why he didn't start Elo during the game. I can tell you uh, this is kind of a thing that that Coach Dawkins does when he has reliable starters. Um, or I should say reliable backups who can start. Uh, he likes to give guys a chance to find their sea legs and get things going. And that's what Darius Johnson did in this game for certain. And, it, you know, when Sanford came out with a full court press early, he and Jalen Young were both there to handle the ball, minimize mistakes and make all that kind of work. So at the end of the day, this was certainly uh, I mean, every, every this isn't one of those where one or two players kind of dominate the evening this was certainly a a a true team win uh for the knights on the floor there had a number of uh double digit scores you know on the night to kind of you like the depth you like the depth in other words i think coach dawkins you and like they like the depth they have right and uh, it's kind of saved them they're six to two on the year they'll host tarlington state i guess is their name now i thought they were tarlington Tarleton but whatever state. whatever yeah. whatever six to two noon uh noon tip before going on the road next week at Old Miss uh, for the men's side. The women's side uh, took the first loss of the year on Saturday, unfortunately set the tone for a, lo a long day of UCF athletic losses. Uh, women's were at Auburn and lost by 40 points, their first loss of the year. Uh, cover your ears, Kyle. You don't want to hear this stat I have for you. <laughs> UCF, the last time they lost in women's basketball by 40 points or more in a game, 2016 when they lost to South Florida by 45 points in Tampa. That was the year before uh, that head coach who's now in Athens coached here. <laughs> you know, and, and I had commented with Jeff the previous uh, uh, podcast with this game upcoming that this would be the first test of a team with dominant size on the roster in and of itself. They have two players that are 6'5". For context, that is tall as I am. Okay, so yeah, and at the end of the day, uh, this is going to be the one way you can overwhelm this group is if you can outbody them. Listen, Destiny Thomas had her eight rebounds. She did her thing, but the next best rebounder was Rachel Ranke, who's a guard. Granted, she's six foot. The top rebounder for Auburn, uh, for Auburn was another six-foot guard. The boards was what made the difference in this game, Elo. The the Knights the Knights only managed thirty three while Auburn had fifty one total so I the, definitely the boards being crashed I think this might be the first game certainly the first game where the difference was this dominant against UCF and also shooting not going very well from beyond the arc as well um, versatility was not on display in this game heck Auburn even got to the free throw line at a regular clip they had nineteen free throw shots UCF 
Didn't manage to get to the line a lot. They got there 28 times for 20 of the points. So they had that going for them. They were trying to attack, but at the end of the day, just not a, uh, enough to really get any true firepower going uh, on the evening. Well, and it's going to be interesting. I'm curious how they bounce back and respond this Sunday. You're going to be there. UCF's hosting Seton Hall mm-hmm. out of the Big East. Last year they played Seton Hall at Seton Hall. UCF won the game, but obviously it's a completely different deal now UCF is a completely different team and then after Seton Hall UCF goes back to the road on the road to an SEC location at Tennessee to play at Pat Summit Court yeah. Kyle this is not an easy stretch here at all a team that's banged up roster wise I and I think we said this a few weeks back I can this team last with all the injuries they've had they're gonna get challenged here in the next couple of games Seton Hall that's a big home game for them I'm curious how they respond yeah, and listen, Seton Hall, uh, at least in the opinion of their coach, had a shot to win that game and probably should have, like I said, in the opinion of their coach. Um, so with, with all that being said, you know, that was a close game. I feel like that's one that could have gone either way too. Um, but that was also a road game for the Knights. We'll see how the uh, the Seton Hall ladies travel and what they have to bring to the table. Um, I haven't had a chance to look over their lineup yet. I'm sure. Well, we know this. They beat a team that that team from Athens earlier this year in a tournament, and <laughs> that uh, we're familiar with that roster, aren't we, Kyle? <laughs> Just a little bit, buddy. Just a little bit. Um, that oh, being said, uh, I don't think Keaton Hall is as big as the Auburn group by any stretch of the imagination. No. no. So. Plus, I I read about that Seton Hall Georgia. There was some wild officiating going on in over mm. there in the, in the islands, Virgin Islands. I think they were playing uh, over there. Uh, there, but tough, tough chin to you know. We'll see how they come out here against uh, Seton Hall uh, on Sunday. Big game. What time is tip? That's a doubleheader day here. We got of hoops, don't we? Yeah, the men tip off at noon uh, for the Tarleton State game, and the ladies tip off at three o'clock. Three o'clock. Kyle Nash gonna be there during. The late window there. Uh, that's a, a rare three o'clock Sunday game. That should be a good one, uh, Kyle. Uh, there, sir. So, in fact, in fact, that's a in fact. We're gonna get let you go now. We're gonna let you opt out of the rest of this segment and preserve the remaining eligibility that you have and get you set for that uh, women's game, sir. Yeah, no, I appreciate the consideration. Um, I I know that Bryson will handle the final segment. Oh, we're burning his red shirt. It's it's being done. Yeah, well, I'm I'm certain he'll do a lot better than other guys whose red shirt was burned. And um, you know, I'm taking a shot at Drew. I'm kidding. Um, no. Um, but yeah, Bryson will take care of this segment just fine. Um, and looking forward to the game on Sunday. Until next time, gentlemen, class dismissed. That's Kyle Nash, ladies and gentlemen, as we'll let him go here, Bryson. But Bryson, the women's basketball wasn't the only women's team uh, from UCF to lose on Saturday. Right during the football game and then after the football game, UCF volleyball season came to an end, losing in the second round to Penn State in four sets, ending their season at 28-2. and two. They had won the first round match on Friday, sweeping Yale in three sets, which was expected. Uh, but obviously it comes to uh, the end of a legacy there. McKenna Melville, the greatest UCF volleyball player ever, playing her final match as a night. In fact, she even uh, posted on Instagram on Tuesday, pretty much saying, She's done as a player, which we all knew she's going to go into teaching uh, and be a high school coach and a teacher, just like her mom was in Minnesota. I wouldn't be surprised if she moves to Minnesota eventually to do that, although Florida certainly could be an option in that. Last game for Amber Olsen, two-time setter of the year, Kari Zumach, uh, obviously as well, among other the seniors, Dressy Pass, et cetera. And unfortunately, Bison, you know, UCF got off to a great start in that first set, won the first set against Penn State. Penn State, though, made some adjustments 
and took the next three sets. UCF made some mental errors, was held to about, what, 229 hitting, one of their lowest performances of the year. And McKenna even said on the postgame when I talked to her after the match on the postgame press conference, Penn State was so big, biggest team they've seen all year. And uh, Penn State was just over, over able to overpower them with their size and power. And as a result, UCF uh, season comes to an end once again in the second round. Oh, sir, history does not repeat itself, but it sure does rhyme. It is now currently four of uh, 4.07 Eastern time as we're recording this. This time, 25 years ago, Renata Menchikova and Tyra Harper were, begin were beginning their final collegiate volleyball match in the NCAA tournament against another Big Ten team, Wisconsin. And now we see McKenna Melville and Amber Olsen, an another great UCF volleyball duo, and their career at a Big, at a big Ten court against Penn State. I actually saw there was a tweet 35 minutes ago that Kari Zumach said that where she says, so does college volleyball just die now that McKenna reti is retired? Who's going to carry the sport or lead the nation in everything? <laughs> so it, it's a, it, it's a blow. I mean, lose it, it's Penn State. It's a great it, it's a great opponent. It's Big Ten territory, Big Ten. I mean, you can't there's no real you can't really have an introduction for Big Ten volleyball. And it, it just ended up being a bad case. I mean, second round for the uh, second round, you're still not getting past that. It has to be an unfortunate way to end McKenna and Amber's career. But I I don't know, Eric. I would argue that this was – I mean, I remember we said last season that you, that UCF became the closest that it had ever been to a second uh, – to a berth in the, in the Sweet They were 16. up two sets to one at UCLA – you know, had a lead in the fourth set, couldn't hold it, lost in five sets. That was the closest, yes, if any UCF team in the Division One era had come to this round of 16. Now, that said, UC, in, during the this this volleyball matchup, UCF, I mean, they they didn't get more, like, they got didn't get less than 18 points in a set, even though the set loss is a bit different. Do you think that they were closer this season, at least as far as in-match, than they were last time against UCLA? Uh, I would say UCLA was a little tighter, but I mean, again, UCF led in the third set, led in the fourth set. They led 13-9, led 12-9, couldn't hold it. Uh, you know, give Penn State credit. Katie Clark, a transfer from TCU, was fantastic for Penn State. Ten kills for them. Uh, had a ton of blocks for them. Cash Williams had 15 kills. Zoe Worthington had 13 kills. Um, you know, what's tough is, you know, I thought – UCF had a good shot in this regional because they were the more experienced team. This is a young Penn State team that hadn't been to the Sweet 16 since 2019, had four new, eight new players, four freshmen, four transfers. Uh, really, they had to build it from the from the ground up, and a credit to them and their first-year head coach who took over for the legendary uh, coach, Coach Rose, there at Penn State. But, you know, UCF just couldn't, you know, little minor mistakes – Mental thing, you wonder if you're playing a team that's bigger, does that get to your head a little bit? You try to do too much. You don't know if that played a role in it. But, you know, listen, that was – you know this, covered the team all year. I covered them all year. McKenna and Amber came back in part because they wanted to get to this round of 16 and beyond, and unfortunately it didn't work out for them. And then it stings a little bit, especially when your rival, Houston, goes through, wins the Omaha Regional, beating uh, South Dakota in five sets – and then comes from behind to beat Auburn in five sets. They're going to the Sweet 16 for the first time since 1994. They're out in Palo Alto to play Stanford. 
and they're uh they get to the sweet 16 so it, it stings a little bit and you know you you you, you reference Kari's questions there I would I I, I would quite that's going to be a big question now for this program is what happens after McKenna life yeah. after McKenna that's going to be the question as UCF now volleyball goes into the big 12 which is considered right now maybe either number one or depending on what you look at number one or definitely the number two conference in the sport behind the big 10 so it's going to get tougher to rub salt in the wound or at least it maybe it rubs salt in the wound houston also produced probably the volleyball highlight of the, the play year. of the year yeah absolutely I mean, with the great play with uh their great libero who won the libero of the year they're the story of the year and they won the automatic bid in the league <laughs> it's just kind of wild but yeah, it's um I, I will say this though um, so the AVCA all region uh, teams were announced. Uh, McKenna Melville for the fifth year in a row was named to the all Southeast region, the all re Southeast all region team. But she was also named the Southeast region's player of the year this season. You know who actually got the coach of the year for the Southeast region? David Rear, Houston. Yes, sir. B um, but McKenna wasn't alone. Uh, Claudia Dillon was named to the all region honorable Southeast region honorable mention team. So, and she is, I, I believe is, is look is slated to come back for next season. I know we mentioned this a little bit on uh night shift when we recap this game. So if you, so if you want to listen to the whole conversation, go and watch that. It's on the black and gold banner at YouTube channel. Be sure to subscribe. But the the fact that the that middles Abby Hansen and Claudia Dillon have another season of eligibility in this Big Twelve is pretty huge, considering that you you know that you're losing McKenna and Amber, right? It helps. That's going to be part of their strength. Obviously, we'll see what they do. We got Heidi Bondi back. At, you know, uh, you got your, you got Wilson back, but you got you know. But who knows? We'll see. I mean, they they're about to enter the transfer portal season themselves, so I have a feeling they're going to be aggressive on the portal. And I think you'll see some new faces there as well. Uh, so we'll see what the roster looks like. It'll be a younger roster. And it's going to be a different roster. And again, you lose the greatest player in the history of the program. One of the greatest volleyball players of all time. McKenna Melville ends up in the top 10, I think ninth all time in kills. Number one at UCF. Number three all time in digs. Um, it's going to be strange, Mr. Bryson Turner, when you're at the venue in the fall, next fall. And there's no number 20 uh, with the name Melville in the back uh, playing there. That's oh. going to be a little strange. going to be a little strange. Uh, but let's congratulate her on an incredible career. The Without question, I think she's the greatest player in the history of the program. You mentioned the 25 years ago with Harper and Menchikova. It's kind of spooky. They both end their careers 25 years apart in a second round against the powerhouse Big Ten program. But McKenna Melville, what she's done for this program on and off the court, will you, you just can't duplicate that. Uh, and uh, I think everybody that had a chance to watch her in person or cover her in person or meet her uh, will understand that she'll be successful as a teacher and a, as, I, as I said, and a coach in the high school level. But uh, we're, we're not they UCF will have other great players, no doubt, but there's never going to be another McKenna Melville. Those are that's a once in a generation. I, I, well, I mean, I'm sure a lot of people back then said there wouldn't be another Renata Menchikova. I'm sure, right. I'm sure it's going to, uh, so it took 25 I, years, <laughs> it took 25 years though. So, you know, it's, so it's going to, so we'll see about that. We're going to have to wait a while. I, I think, I, I, I think at the very least, we're going to have to wait a long time before we see anybody yeah. even close 
to what McKenna did. And not to mention, you mentioned uh, her her status at Diggs. McKenna is also in the top 10 all time in service aces and block solos. So, I mean, there really isn't another player quite like her and white like her. And if we all if we do see a player like McKenna Melville again, it isn't going to happen for a very for a very long time. Not to mention. Well, like- and I, I want you to bring this up because you're a student. She won the Pegasus of uh, the uh, the award for the student. Explain again the impact I, her as great as she was on the court, off the court. And one of the best students, athletes ever. Yes, she was a, she was one of the students that uh, that was awarded with the Order of Pegasus, which is the most prestigious and significant award a student a student can get for, at UCF. Like if I had like I could get it if I had if if I if I qualified for it, basically, that's kind of the whole idea. And so the fact that, you know, she was able to get that really shows that it it's not just on the court that she was successful. She was successful off the court too. McKenna Melville is a special kind of individual, of individual. Like there's a reason why you saw, like when you look at the black and gold banner at YouTube channel and look through all of our volleyball videos, McKenna Melville is in a lot of them. And that is, and, and she really, she is so, she really is able to explain the game so well. And it really makes a lot of sense why she wants to go into coaching and, and at the high school level, just like her mother did. And I think that, she, and I think she's going to have success with it. She's a, she's a communicator. She's a leader. And that's going to, re, I think, translate to a major, major success for her wherever she decides to coach, whether it's going to be in Florida or Minnesota or, or, or wherever she wants to go in the country. I'm sure any high school would love to have her as their as their volleyball coach, but you mentioned how you mentioned Eric how weird it would be to not see a uh, number twenty with Melville on the back of the venue next year. Let's not forget we're also not going to see somebody with the name Olson on the back of their jersey for the first time in a long time starting next season. Yeah, Amber Olson done. Aaron Olson obviously her sister before that is the setters. They're going to have to replace her. Do they? You know they got Abby Shalmers who they redshirted this year. Do they go with her? Do they go with somebody from the portal? A lot of questions with the team. Uh, but you're right, Olsen and, and Melver, they're going to be linked together uh, throughout their careers. It's just going to be different. It's going to be different, and, man. I, I, you just, I, hope, I, hope, I hope we also acknowledge them, maybe celebrate them here down the road here. I, you know, I don't know if they'll be around in the spring or not, but you know, it's kinda, it felt, I felt bad that their career kind of ended quietly because it got distracted. It was kind of under the umbrella of football, right? Like everybody was focused on the football game with the championship game. And so volleyball kind of took a back seat, unfortunately, because uh, that was a memorable deal. But you and I will never forget, we were both at the venue, which turns out was McKenna and Amber's last home match at the venue of that five-setter against Houston. That's a heck of a way to go out for them in their last match in the venue. I'll never forget that. I will never forget it either. I think, like in as far as in the clubhouse is concerned, I think it's I think it's a it's the UCF athletics game of the year so far, and. To see all the seniors go out that way. I know we talk about McKenna and Amber a lot because of the contributions they made to the university, but let's not forget that we all that, let's not forget the other seniors that had their la- that had their last match in that one. Kari Zumok you know, transferred it transferred in from ten from Indiana. I mean, the story with her, she posted a video on Twitter where she talked about how much it meant to her to be on this team after what after it seems like there was some mental health struggles with her at Indiana. And so to see 
real not only in the in the post game pressers that we've talked to her with, but in that video to see how much you know she has. See, she so seems so bright, and to have the fact that that program brought that to her, I think means more than almost than pretty much anything that you can see all on the court statistically. UCF volleyball finishes the year twenty eight and two. Uh, they will name in about a week next week the All-Americans. We expect McKenna to be an All-American once again on that, and UCF begins life in the Big 12. We'll see how that goes. We'll see if they end up in the final top 25 rankings. Eh, we'll see. One team on campus that we know is guaranteed of the top 25, Bryson, is women's soccer. Yes, the, the yes, the United Soccer Coaches have just released their – now that the, the College Cup has concluded – they have released their final rankings for the 2022 season. And the and UCF women's soccer team, who took the national champion UCLA Bruins two penalty kicks, ended up the season at the number 23 spot. So I think that the coaches probably saw that performance against UCLA and I think rec- and gave them recognition for that by giving them a top 25 spot now that it's all wrapped up. No question about it. UCLA won the national title Monday night in a wild national championship, beating North Carolina, who UCF also played during the season up in Chapel Hill. North Carolina won that match. UCLA was down 2 nothing with 10 minutes to go in regulation. Came back, scored two goals, sent it to overtime. They scored a game-winning goal right before uh, the last uh, overtime session to beat North Carolina 3-2. to So UCLA, you're right, Bryson. UCF women's soccer ended up losing to the eventual national champions in the second round on PKs. Softball, remember, lost to the eventual national champions, Oklahoma, in the Super Regionals. We just run into national championship teams, man. It's Yeah, it seems so. I, I, I mean, I think this really shows that even though they didn't get past the second, the second round, that I think that if they had, if they had, had a better draw, uh, then, uh, like, for example, say, Men- and maybe if the, things went a little differently with the PKs against Memphis in the American Athletic Conference tournament, we probably could have seen them get a better draw and perhaps get further into the tournament. I think that the fact that they, that they took the national champions to PKs really shows what they could what they could have done if they had not gone up against that kind of juggernaut juggernaut there but it, it is what it is what it is i think that the, considering every considering that so many players came back for their final year for to to be with Tiffany Roberts Zahadak and of course the Roberts Zahadak was off for a few games with the national team so you had to have Tim Zahadak take over for a few games and Kristen Scott was gone for a few games with injury i mean it's kind of amazing that this season ended up being the season that Tiffany Roberts Hadak finally makes it back to the NCAA to the NCAA tournament, and because I think this team very much well earned it, and so now they have to reload for their first season in the Big Twelve. They've already made a, an announcement because we talked about the transfer portal last semester. It, it's not just football that started that. Women's soccer managed to managed to announce they landed. A defender midfielder transfer from Stetson named Kylie named Kylie Felon, who was named uh, the All A Sun third team as a def- as a defender. So already Tiffany Roberts of Haydak is hitting right. the transfer portal and ready low. Remember that's how we got Georgia Eaton Collins this season from Florida. That's correct. There, by the way, I think it sounded like you were making a case for women's soccer to be the team of the year, and maybe perhaps early in the in the clubhouse. Um. Maybe so. We got the the transfer portal up, by the way, on blackandgoldbattery.com. Now, not only we have football, but we have other things, too, on the site as far as keeping track with the portal. 
right now so so the way that it works is that so far we don't we is we're going to track all the fall sports in this category all the fall team sports so football the soccers and volleyball are all going to be the we're we're going to track who's who's in the transfer portal on there as we as we hear them at the moment you're only going to see outgoing transfers for football and incoming transfers for women's soccer because that's the only things that have happened so far so once other situations happen, such as football bringing in new transfers, or perhaps somebody may transfer out of women's soccer. And the same thing with men's soccer and volleyball. If someone, if someone makes an, annou- an announcement that they are tra- either entering the transfer portal or coming here from the transfer portal, we will add those to that page as they are made available. So it's all about just w- w- once we hear it, it's going to go up there. Just bookmark it. That's what I do. I, I That's the only way I could keep track. Uh, trust me on that. And then lastly, uh, men's soccer, uh, Austin David, our good friend, just reported that Gino Vivi, Luca Dorado, and one other player Anderson is going to be – Anderson Rosa. They're all invited to the MLS Combine, basically, uh, tryouts in January. Is that when it takes place? Actually, it takes place – we're recording this on December 7th. It starts December 9th, and it goes through oh, December wow. 12th in Raleigh, North Carolina. So they're going to do the tryout. So this is kind of like the NFL combine, the NFL, you know, to showcase yourself for the upcoming MLS super draft that usually takes place in January. I have a feeling you and Austin may discuss this more further down the road on our uh, YouTube channel, uh, down the road on black and gold banner, which is a good plug, cheap plug to say, remember to subscribe to the black and gold banner at YouTube channel, where it also follow us on social media, on Twitter, Facebook, uh, as well as our blackandgoldbanneret.com website. We'll have much details there, uh, including hopefully the TV article where UCF Tulane did 2.6 million viewers uh, for the title game, three and a half local rating in Orlando, a uh, near 10 rating in New Orleans. Big number to watch Tulane up there in that in that area. Uh, I forgot to mention that in the opening segment, so I threw it out net now. So, uh, but I mean, we're going to wrap- Better than LSU did. Correct. Better result than LSU did. Uh, but we're going to wrap it up here. Thanks to Kyle Nash. Thanks to Drew Glukoff. Thank you, Bryson, for joining us. you got a busy week ahead. Uh, I'm Eric Lopez. We hope you've enjoyed this edition of the Black and Go Better at Podcast.